As we get older, things get revealed to us. Now, if we just existed in whatever we could work out, whatever we could understand, well, we wouldn't actually understand much about the nature of reality. We've come a long way since prehistoric times, but things had to be revealed to us. We couldn't just come up with them um, naturally. We couldn't come up with them by ourselves. And it's the same with spiritual things. Uh, with spiritual things, these things need to be revealed to you. You can't just come up with them by yourself. And so Paul, he has a mystery revealed to him. He gets this mystery from God and he gets this spiritual revelation that gives us more deep insights into what's going on behind the scenes and how God is thinking and what God intends to accomplish. And so the Old Testament, it's full of all of these expectations and promises. It's full of these covenants that God made with human beings, in particular the nation of Israel. And so all of these promises and all of these clues are headed towards the future when this new covenant comes in place. But it's still a mystery. How is God's word going to continually be faithful all throughout time? And so Paul is going to deal with many key questions. Some of those questions, for instance, who will reign on the Davidic throne? Uh, another question could potentially be, you know, when will justice occur? When will justice happen? When will there be peace in the world? And what are we going to do about the Gentiles? How uh, is God going to include the Gentiles in this grand story, in this grand narrative? And so Paul is going to be dealing with that last question. How are the Gentiles going to be included? A lot of those things, key uh, questions that the Jewish people had, but now, now something different. And so Paul begins, he says, uh, for this reason. And if you ever read for this reason in the text, and that's how something starts, well, you better find out what that reason was beforehand. What is he referring to? And we know that from uh, chapter 2, verse 11, down to the end of the, that chapter, Paul is dealing with the inclusion of Gentiles. So he's going to basically be summarizing what he's talked about before. And he's really going to make everything that he's saying explicit. He's going to make it clear and easy to understand. And he says this, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul is in prison. He is in prison in Rome and he knew that he was going to have to suffer. That was part and parcel of the deal of him being an apostle. Now, Paul chose that path. He could have pulled a prophet Jonah. And as soon as God said to him, you're going to go out and preach to the Gentiles, who I'm sure Paul was just as prejudiced against as all the other Jews of his time. He could have gotten the next ship out to Tarshish and had nothing to do uh, with what God wanted him to do. But instead, he decided to fulfill and uh, and get involved in what God wanted him to do. And so Paul is in prison. And ironically, he's actually in prison for bringing Gentiles into the temple in Jerusalem. He gets uh, arrested after he brings a bunch of Greeks into the temple. You can read about it in Acts 21, 28, where the Jews seize Paul and they say, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. But Paul, he made a calculated move in bringing those Gentiles into the temple. 
He made a calculated move. He made an antagonistic move towards the Jewish people. And it was because he was so thoroughly convinced that Gentiles were going to be uh, included that he was willing to go to jail for it. And he did it willingly. He even had so many different people warn him against it. Even a prophet came to him and warned him not to go to Jerusalem because he was going to be arrested. And Paul knew he would suffer because Christ told him that he was going to have to suffer. Uh, you can read about it in Acts 9, where Paul gets sent to Ananias after being blinded by Jesus. And uh, this is what God says to Ananias in Acts 9.15. He says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was willing to suffer so that he would win souls for Christ. But many of us in the church, we're not the same. We're not willing to suffer to win souls uh, for Jesus. In fact, we're not willing to give up our next meal. We're not willing to give up our next Netflix series. We're not willing to give up really anything to win souls. In the church, we're very timid. We're very weak. We're, a lot of us are cowards. We refuse to take risks. We don't want to get out there and make ourselves uncomfortable. We wouldn't even risk an awkward situation in order to win souls. See, there is a big disconnect between the way that Paul views his ministry from God and the way that the church in Australia views their ministry for God. See, Paul was willing to suffer. He was willing to give up his reputation, his comfort, his security, his status for the Gentiles. He was willing to give it up for people that before he was prejudiced against. But now he recognizes God's sovereign love and care and grace that he's bestowed upon the Gentiles. And he has given his life even to the point of going to prison. And you can read about all the other stuff that Paul suffers in the book of Acts. But he went through a lot for the, for the Gentiles. And he was willing to suffer because of the opportunities it gave him. Now, if Paul wasn't fruitful, if he had gone out to the Gentile nations on his missionary journeys and no one had come to faith, no one had turned to his message, we would not be reading about him. If that was the case, he wouldn't be in prison. Why? It's precisely because he was fruitful is why he was in prison. Because when the gospel goes out and there's a genuine gospel work and lives are changed and the status quo is uh, disrupted, people start to take notes. Those that are hostile to the gospel start to come out against the leadership of churches. And that's exactly what's happened to Paul. When the church reaches this critical mass, you can end up suffering for the sake of the gospel. But when, when the church is small, when our churches aren't reaching people, when our churches aren't making any sort of influence, we fly under the radar. And of course, we're not going to suffer for our faith. But when we see God do mighty things, and God rescue and change and save people, well, then we're going to see suffering. Then we're going to see things uh, like we saw in the early church. But until that happens, we're going to live in a life of comfort, of security, with no risk. Yeah, we don't, get, we don't suffer in that life. Well, not as much. But is it worth it? For Paul, it is not worth it. 
Now, Paul talks about stewardship, stewarding. In uh, verse 2, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, that Greek word stewardship is actually a very interesting word. Uh, it refers to the administration and execution of a plan. Now, I want you to think of like a butler, maybe from like Pride or Prejudice, that kind of era, where a butler would kind of run an estate and he would run the whole house. He'd make sure that uh, the children are educated, that the, uh, the teachers come in at their time and educate the, uh, the children. He'd make sure that the kitchen staff are preparing the meals and that all the food has been ordered, that the horses are taken care of, that all the laborers that are out in the field are doing their job. Um, and he would even organize kind of the schedule for the master of the house and he would brief him on what he had to do. And so the, the butler or the steward was the one who ran the household. And so Paul thinks of himself as being this steward of God's grace given towards the Gentiles, this steward of this mystery that he's talking about. And so Paul, I want you to think of him, he's kind of like the CEO of the Gentile missionary movement. He's the guy that administers and makes sure that this goes forward, that the mission goes forward, that people are going where they need to be, that uh, the needs of the Gentiles are being met. He even organizes for the Gentiles to give money back to Jerusalem. He, he's organizing all these things, appointing elders. He's like this great CEO administering this missionary plan. And he talks about this stewardship as grace, grace given to him through the Spirit for the Gentiles on their behalf. So it's not about Paul. It's not about him. This isn't for his glory. He's not in this position of prominence so he can bring himself glory. No, it has brought him much pain and suffering. But he does it. Well, he does it because he loves these churches and he loves these Gentiles. Radical change for a Jewish man like him. So this stewardship is the administration of a plan and it is the practical implications of this message that we've just read, isn't it? If you really do believe that salvation is for all people, then that will show itself out by you preaching to all people. If you think it's for an elite group, well, you're not going to bother administering to the to the, the, the masses. You're not going to bother administrating these things uh, to, the, to the plebs. You're going to always go after the elite. But Paul was not that way. It wasn't this inner circle of elite intellectuals, but it was slaves. Uh, it was women. It was the lower class of society. Uh, very rarely were there rich people because rich people didn't want to give up their reputation. They didn't want to give up their status. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says. Verse 3 to 4. We have this stewardship of this, this message, this mystery. We see that clearly, verse 3. Um, verse 3. Uh, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now we hear this word, uh, mystery. And whenever I hear about the word mystery, I just think of like mystery novels or something like a mystery movie, uh, something like Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot, just going around, you know, a series of events, sometimes humorous. Um, and at the end of it, you find out that it was the least likely person who committed that, uh, committed the crime, committed the murder. Uh, it's actually a very popular genre. Things like true crime documentaries and podcasts that are just blowing up. People are getting right into it. Uh, people love love these things mainly because 
the reveal at the end is always so uh, satisfying just to see how all those different clues and uh, threads come into place right at the end and you go, oh, that was the person that did it. You know, that was the person that committed the crime. I knew it was them all along. It's just such a satisfying feeling when a mystery is solved. Um, in, in the isolation that we all have, everyone's at home, there's this thing called Project Cold Case and um, they'll, they get people, amateur detectives, people just sitting on their couches to go in and sift through all the evidence in cold cases and try to find new leads, try to find new tips uh, for these investigators. And so a lot of people are out there doing it. It's quite popular. Everyone loves solving uh, solving these mysteries. And Paul says, you know, you've got to read this letter out. The elders of the church generally, when a letter came in from Paul, they'd grab this letter and they'd read it out to the entire church. And the church uh, would be able to to know this mystery because this the, re- the revelation of this mystery, what this mystery is pointing to, what it's going to reveal is for everyone. It is for everyone in the church, not an elite few, not this intellectual bunch, not the elders of the church. It is for everyone to hear. And so in the text, we have this mystery and Paul's going to reveal it to us. And it's going to answer this question. How will God include the Gentiles? So he's going to give clues. So we've got all these clues all throughout the Old Testament that point towards this. For instance, uh, the Son of Man in Daniel 7.14, which to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. So how are all these nations going to serve him, are going to worship him with the only worship that's due to God in heaven, to this Son of Man? How is this going to work itself out? What is this going to look like? Paul has kept us in suspense for such a long time, but he's going to reveal this mystery. He's constantly been pointing to it, giving us clues for it, leading us to the answer, but now he's going to say it plainly. And we're going to see what this mystery is. Verse 4, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This ministry is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now the Gentiles in here, they have full inclusion. They have full inclusion into, into, and status into the nature, into the nation and promises of Israel. The Gentiles are now fellow heirs. They're in the same body. They are included now in such a way that it is radical. This is a major, major development in the, hist- in the salvation history throughout the Bible. It was not known beforehand. No one knew about it beforehand, how this was going to work. We had clues, as I said, clues that pointed to this mystery being solved all throughout the Old Testament. And yet here in Jesus, in the message of the gospel that Paul is delivering, the mystery is now solved. This is how God will solve the Gentile problem. He will solve it by including them as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises. So through the apostles and the prophets, uh, and, and through God's spirit, this is made known. See, 
Uh, Paul was first. Paul was the first one that had this revelation that the Gentiles were to be included, but then he was backed up by all the other apostles and the prophets who knew what Paul was saying was true. And you can read all about it in the book of Acts because the Holy Spirit comes upon Gentiles and everyone's really confused because they weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit to also indwell Gentiles, that Gentiles would be made holy and being included into the promises. But Paul was first. He had this revealed to him first. He was the first person set aside to go out towards the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them. And because now they are included, because now the Gentiles are included into this wonderful promise, it is not just Paul. He's not the inventor of this message. It is through the Holy Spirit. It is through the apostles. It is through the prophets. Paul isn't alone. Everyone in the early church believed this message. And man, it really got on the nerves of the Jewish people. It really bothered them. In fact, it bothered them so much, Paul was in prison because he wanted to include the Gentiles. And so this was controversial in Ephesus. Remember, right at the beginning when we were talking about the the book itself, Only 12 Jewish men converted to Christianity in Ephesus. Well, at least they're the only ones we know about. Perhaps there were a few more. But largely, the synagogue had rejected Paul. They they spoke evil of uh, of the way. They spoke evil of Christians. Uh, The Jews in Ephesus were very, very hostile, not just to the Gentiles, but to especially the Gentile Christians. And there was only a small few, maybe 12 men, maybe a little bit more, who were, who were disciples of John the Baptist, who converted uh, to Jesus and accepted him as their Messiah. But in Ephesus, there was a lot of hostility still. But yet, within the church, there was peace. Outside of the church, yeah, there was hostility. Yeah, the Jews were against the Gentiles. The Gentiles were against the Jews. Inside the church, there were Jews and Gentiles together, the same body, The hostility had broken down. There was reconciliation. There was peace. And so that was a stark contrast to the city around them. It was a massive contrast to the city around them. And this is a major development. I can't stress this enough. Paul is laboring long. We're three sermons into this, but he's laboring long on this because this is important. And is it important for your heart? Because do you sort people into categories? Do you sort people into, these are the ones that I want in my church and these are the ones I don't want in my church? Do you sort people into, they're the ones I want to preach to, these are the ones I don't want to associate with? Because this message is for you. Because just like the Jews, you could reject the Gentiles. Or just like the Gentiles, you can think of the Jews as these moral bigots. Or if you were a Jewish person, you can think of the Gentiles as these like, licentious, pagan, indulgent people. It doesn't matter what group you belong to because God brings us all together into one body. There is no one that is too far outside of God's salvation. There is no one outside of the reach of the gospel. There is no one outside the church. Don't think that there are people that you can't preach to or even worse, people you don't want in the church. Because Paul understood what this inclusion meant. And he preached to everyone. Do we have these categories of people that we approach and people that we don't approach? Do we have these categories of people we want in the church and people we don't want in the church? Because those categories are antithetical to what 
Paul has laid out for us here in this passage. So let's break it down. The Gentiles are included. Uh, the, the minister, uh, this mystery is the Gentile inclusion. And there are three things that Paul talks about. Three key things that Paul talks about here. Number one, they're fellow heirs. Number two, they are members of the same body. And number three, they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Number one, what does it mean to be a fellow heir? See, Gentiles now have full access through the Spirit. They have full membership through the Spirit into all of the promises of Israel, into their household. And because of that, catch this, they're inheritors. They are inheritors. Now, just like when you die, you might receive something from, uh, sorry, when your parents die, you might receive something from your parents as an inheritance. Uh, when you, we inherit things all throughout our life. We're constantly being given gifts, especially from our family. Just as we are inheritors in our family, now we are inheritors in God's family. Because now we belong to Jesus and now we belong to the household of God. We're inheritors into God's family. And so what do they inherit? What do they inherit? Romans 8, 17. We are heirs of God. 1 Peter 3, 7. We're heirs, heirs of the grace of life. Paul has already laid this down. Ephesians 1, 14. As we've already seen, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The main thing that you inherit is you inherit God himself. The God who promised himself to the nation Israel and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. You are now part of his kingdom and you inherit him now as your God and you become his people. You become his inheritance. We get this new inheritance and we, the inheritance is God. We get God. And we get eternal life. We inherit that eternal life. Now, when you hear eternal life, you may think that just means quantity. It just means days. You get, you get an unlimited amount of days, but you, it also means quality. It's not just quantity, but quality. You also receive life in fullness, in abundance, the way it's supposed to be, with its true belonging, with its true all human needs, all human capacities are met. That is what is promised here. And so we inherit God. And for now, we get a small little taste of that inheritance. Right now, the Holy Spirit given as a down payment. Until we are fully in the presence of God, right now we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you indeed have the Holy Spirit, if you've been born again, if you're a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ, you now have part of your inheritance as proof that you will receive it in full on that final day. You are fellow heirs with the Jewish people. And if you're a Jewish person, you now receive this inheritance and you have this guarantee. See, those that have tasted, those that have tasted the goodness of God through the Spirit, we walk in obedience as children. We walk in obedience with hope. We are different than the world. We are part of something new. Second point, 
We are members of the same body. Jews and Gentiles, when they come together, make something new. They make something new. When different classes of people come together, we make something new. When different races come together and there are different cultural uh, there are cultural differences between groups of people and they come together. They make something new. The thing that ties us all together is the blood of Christ, is the salvation we have and the same Holy Spirit. We're part of the same church across all time, across every country, every place. Anyone who belongs to Jesus, we're part of that one universal invisible church. If you are a believer today, you are part of that great thing. So don't feel bad about yourself. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. If you're in a small church and you feel like God is not doing big things, God saved you and that is a big deal. God brought you together with a bunch of people that are different ages, different cultures, different backgrounds, different classes, and you were brought together to be one body with them. See, we are Christ's body. Now, if you think of the human body, this is the example that Paul's giving a body we're different, right? Toes and fingers are different. Eyes and ears are different. And your nose and your mouth are different. The head and the body, uh, and the torso are different. An arm and a leg, it doesn't matter. But all of these things together make a body. If you just took someone's arm and that was their body, that it was just an arm, that is a bizarre and like weird creature if it was just an arm. But all together we make something beautiful. If you isolate it and you say, you're not important because you're a finger, trust me, if you would hurt if I cut your finger off. It, you would feel lacking if your finger was gone. Everyone in the church matters. Every single person in the church is important to God. And together we create a whole. Together we create a whole. In Jesus, in Christ, we have a family. We have a place to belong. It's the same body. Just as when you were born, you didn't choose your family, did you? You don't get to choose your God's family. We don't get to choose who God decides sovereignly to save. Just as we didn't choose where we were born, what mother we were born to, who were our parents, who were our siblings. So also, we don't get to choose the household of God. And so this family, a place of belonging, oh, we need the church. Now it is fascinating that, you know, we, we need to be meeting together. We need to be together as a church and part of this new body. And you can tell people who haven't had gospel works in their life because they are not, they are not keen on meeting with the church. They are not keen on overcoming the differences they may have. They're not keen of fellowshipping over Jesus. Of course, churches are just places that, that have no fellowship if they are not surrounded in Jesus. If you go to a church and you just do some Christian things, but then all you do is want to talk about everything other than Jesus and expect to have some level of uh, fellowship with these people that you might not have anything in common with, you do have something in common, Jesus. But if you're never getting involved in Jesus or Jesus isn't even important to you, of course you're not going to have fellowship. Of course going to church will be a struggle. Because we're neglecting the one thing that unites us. Of course, when we go to church, we're united by Jesus. So be united in Jesus. If we spend all our time focusing on the differences, of course, church is going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard. The most 
the, the most sweet, precious churches that you can be a part of are the ones that are just soaked in Jesus. That spend all their time glorifying Jesus. But if you spend all your time going to church expecting to find friends that are just like you, and then we split all our churches up into different congregations, where one's like young people congregation, and then you've got the young families, and then you've got the traditional old people services, and we split everyone up. Are we united by Jesus? Or are we united by our similarities? Because Paul says here, we're united by Jesus and nothing else. Nothing else. Last point. We're partakers in the promises in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament is a book that's no longer just for Jews now. Now, I don't know what your relationship with the Old Testament is. I don't know whether reading the Old Testament is something that you love doing. Uh, shout out to Pete. Or maybe it's something that's onerous and hard and you're struggling in it. But know that the Old Testament's not a collective of books just for the Jews now. Because those promises and everything in it now apply to Gentiles. This is what Paul is saying. This is revolutionary. This is a major development. You can read the Old Testament now with you in mind. Because the promises made to Israel are now accessible to you. The promises given now apply to you. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law through his death and resurrection. He has done everything perfectly. The perfect dying from the imperfect. Now you can read the Old Testament and you can see Jesus all through it. And you can see how those promises through the blood of Jesus now apply to you. It changes everything about the Old Testament. And if you don't read the Old Testament with this in mind, of course it's hard to understand. Because you're not reading it properly. You've got to read it through the lens of Jesus. Because if you don't have that lens, man, it's tough. It is tough to read. But with Jesus, it opens up. It opens up and you can just, oh, it's beautiful. It's sweet. It's precious when you understand it. I'm not saying read yourself into every passage because the Bible is not about you. But you can understand how it applies to you now. Now, salvation, I think the best part about it is that salvation was always in mind. That all throughout the gospel narrative, even from the moment in Genesis, when that prophecy is given that um, the seed of the woman will come and the snake will bite his heel, um, but he'll crush his head. Even then, that, that promise that sin will be done away with was for all people. And you can see that narrative all throughout the Old Testament. Man, all those three points that Paul talks about, the mystery of Christ being, they could be three separate sermons. And we don't have time to go through all of those things. But boy, that is a big revelation. That is a massive revealing of a mystery. But I left off one little bit, didn't I? One last tiny bit at the end of verse 6. Through the gospel. Through the gospel. How does this happen? When we respond with faith to Jesus. See, only if you have responded with, in, with faith in Jesus, then these things are true. But these things are not true if you have not responded in faith. If you have rejected Jesus, if you just think, oh yeah, Jesus was a great guy, 
yeah, this is this is kind of interesting, fascinating, great little message, great little uh, you know ethical teachings. Then this is not true for you. This is only true for those that put their trust and faith in Jesus. It's not enough to even just think it's true. You have to put your trust in it. What do I mean? Well, let's say you're in a you're in an aeroplane and you have a parachute. It's not enough to look at the parachute and say, "Yeah, I believe that thing can save me." It's a completely different thing to put it on and jump out of the plane. And it's the same with Jesus. It's one thing to think, yeah, I think he was the son of God. Yeah, I think he was the Messiah. Yes, I think these things are true and he rose again from the dead. And it's another thing to put your trust and faith and hope in him and walk in obedience. Those things are not the same. Because the demons know, right, that Jesus is real. The demons know that Jesus rose again from the dead. That doesn't save them. Knowing these things are true does not save you. But trusting in them does. Putting your faith in them does. Do you trust Jesus enough to take up your cross and follow him? Do you trust Jesus enough to go where he has called you to go? To be led where he leads? Do you trust him? Where is your repentance and faith in your life? Reflect on that. Do you see repentance in your life? Do you see faith in your life? Have you trusted Jesus or do you go your own way? Is there indifference and apathy towards Jesus? Or is there hope and trust in him knowing that he is all you have? Are you broken over your sin or do you make excuses for them? John says, in John 3.18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is the only thing that can save us. Jesus is the only thing that can save people. If you are a Christian, when was the last time you shared the gospel? You may think, oh, the opportunity never came up. It never came up organically. These things just didn't happen. I really wish I had. Where is the spirit leading? Where can the gospel be shared? Where can you be doing the gospel work and laboring long? Because I guarantee that God in his grace and in his goodness, when you sow those seeds, some will land on the good soil. But you've got to be sowing You've got to be casting those seeds out. It's a foolish for a farmer to think that his fields are just going to grow with uh, wheat if he doesn't go out and put the seeds out in the field. He'll soon discover that the only thing that's going to grow in there is weeds. It's no, not good enough to just plow the fields, to make friendships and plow those fields if there are no seeds put in there. Because you'll never see an increase and you'll never see a growth unless you are sharing the gospel. See, Paul risked prison because of this mystery that Gentiles were included. Not only did he risk it, but he went there. Not only did he go there, but he continued to do the very thing that put him there, and that was share the gospel. We even find out that members of, uh, of uh, you know, the centurion guard, uh, of Caesar, the imperial guards have come to faith, even while he's in prison. See, you can see opportunity in everything for the gospel. No matter where you are, there is opportunity. 
If you can't see it, you're not looking hard enough. How about I pray for us? Father, your spirit is all we need to equip us and guide us and lead us as your people. Father, I confess that in many ways we have failed as a church to uh, be fulfilling the great commission that you've given to us. That, Lord, we have prioritized our security and comfort and reputation above your gospel message. Lord, that we have not been broken by the plight of the unbeliever. That we don't care that many are perishing and facing judgment. Lord, our hearts are just so far from you sometimes. I pray for my friends that are struggling. Would you just give them the peace and understanding that comes from the gospel? Would you just give them a deep knowledge of the things that Paul is talking about here? And how wonderful it is that you've included us. Lord, help us walk in obedience and all these things, knowing that you are a great father. We pray, Lord, that you would discipline us, that you would sanctify us, and that you would rescue us on that last day. It's through his precious name we pray. Amen.